pray in your Bible, if you would, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 1. I think we've officially entered what we would call Christmas season, haven't we? It's that time of year, and uh, this time of year, we uh, often hear much about the coming of Christ, and I think that is important. I think that the arrival of Christ into this world ought to be recognized and it ought to be celebrated. We ought to cherish it. Without the coming of Christ, what do we have? We don't have anything. We don't have salvation. He came to give us that. And so uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a couple of Christmas passages this, these next couple Sundays. And uh, we just ended our series through the book of Jonah. And so we're kind of in between right now, in between books. We will get into another book uh, some, some, sometime near the beginning of next year, January. Uh, so y'all be praying for me about that, about direction and, and what book we'll be diving into. I'm looking forward to starting something new. Uh, but I want to look at this passage this morning in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. It's interesting to me that, you know, every Christmas season, you'll probably hear messages on these texts every year. But within these texts, there are different lessons and things that you glean each time you read them, each time you preach them. And, um, and, and I love this passage that we see the announcement coming to Mary. And uh, I want to glean a few things that I think would be beneficial for us to learn. And the title of the message is this, What We Learn From Christmas. What We Learn From Christmas. You could also say, What We Learn From Christ's Advent. And uh, so we're going to look at verse 26 down through verse 38 as our text. And I pray the things we glean would benefit us in our Christian life today. Notice in verse 26, the Bible says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We are always learning, aren't we? Do we ever get to a point where we cease to be learning something? We don't. We as human beings, we are created to grow. We are created to learn. From the time that we are young, we begin to learn. We learn how to crawl and to walk and to run and to climb on things that we're not supposed to climb on and all the good stuff. We learn how to talk and to read and to Right. We learn how to ride a bike and drive a vehicle. We learn how to work a job and to pay bills. We learn new things over and over 
again throughout our life, especially as we experience various things. We never come to a point in which we have it all figured out. As much as we might would like to be that way, we just don't. We are constantly learning. Now, this is true about life in general, but I will say this is also true about God and His Word. You are constantly going to be learning about God. You're never going to get to the point to where you just spiritually plateau and you have arrived. You no longer have to read your Bible. You no longer learn new things. I, as a preacher, have been preaching since I was 17 years old, and every time I dig into the Scriptures, I'm seeing something I never saw before, learning something new. And that's how it's meant to be. You see, God is infinite in His wisdom and His eternal nature. How could we who are finite ever expect to fully attain knowledge of that who is infinite? He who is infinite. You see, since God is infinite, we will never truly be able to grasp the eternal depths of God's wisdom. But what we do find is that God wants us to know Him and to continue growing in our knowledge of Him. Throughout your Christian life, you're going to continue to grow in this way. You will read Scripture, you will pray, and you will experience the presence of God at deeper levels, and through certain seasons of your life, you may learn certain things that you had not learned before. And this is the case with Mary. This is the case with Mary. Mary, who is, we see here, going to be the mother of Jesus, Mary is just a young woman, very young woman. She has a very surprising visit. From an angel known as Gabriel. Now understand Mary, she already knew the Lord in the sense of salvation. She is a a believer in Christ who is to come. Even though she didn't realize she'd be the one to bring Christ into the world, the vessel used. She is a believer in the promise of salvation that God had said would come. But even though Mary had known the Lord, she still had a lot to learn from the Lord. A lot to learn, and I identify with that. I have a lot to learn from the Lord. You have a lot to learn from the Lord. And what we see in this text are some specific lessons that I think Mary learned, but these are also lessons that you and I need to learn. And even if you've known these lessons, perhaps it'll only enhance what we know about these truths. There's a few things we learn about God from the coming of Christ into the world. And the first thing I want to point out in our notes is this is that God's plans are, uh, are unusual. God's plans are unusual. They're not technically according to the normal way, let's say, we would do things. They're unusual. They're unusual to us. And I want to point out two things about this. I want you to understand this, that God, letter A, that God does not operate according to human wisdom. God does not operate according to human wisdom. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people in the world think that God should operate according to human wisdom. And because He doesn't, they just reject Him entirely. They hold God to their own human standard. And therefore, when He doesn't act according to their human standard, they say, I'm a skeptic. I don't think this God is really good. I don't think this God really exists. If God really is all that He says He's in the Scripture, He really should do things the way I think He should do them. But that's not how it works, friend. You know, when you look at the coming of the Messiah, the most important arrival of any person in this world, we might wonder, 
why he came into the world the way that he did. Why did God plan for the most important person coming into the world to come into the world the way in which he actually did? Consider how God orchestrated all that came to pass with his arrival. What is the manner in which the announcement of Christ's coming is made known? Well, in verse 26, we're just going to nitpick a few details here to make this point. We see that Mary, it comes to Mary, but Mary was from a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth. Out of all the towns in Israel in which the vessel, the woman through which Jesus would be born into the world, out of all the towns that this woman would be in, we find Mary in this little town called Nazareth. Why is that a significant point? Because Nazareth ain't significant. <laughs> That's why. Little notes here for you. The village is 40,000 square meters. Could have accommodated a population as high as 2,000, according to some in archaeology. But current estimates allow a population of only 200 to 500 people at the time of Jesus. This is what you'd call a very small town. A small town. And small towns usually aren't well known of or even heard of, right? You know, when we hear of cities like New York City or Dallas or Houston or Los Angeles, immediately we think of a big city with a lot of stuff. We might think of their sports teams or the places we've visited there or maybe a restaurant we like to eat at this place. You know these towns. When you say them, they're known. But oftentimes you hear of little towns and your response is often going to be, as mine is, I've never heard of that place. Where is it? And I'm still learning the towns of Arkansas. Somebody will tell me, well, I'm from over here. Well, where's that? I've never heard of it. So I'll pull up my Google Maps and I'll look because I want to know where is this place they're talking about. Little towns are not well known. You don't typically know of them. Nazareth was one of those little towns, not widely known by most of the world. See, not only was this town small, this town also didn't have a good reputation about it. Nazareth was not known for being a good town. In fact, you recall when, when, uh, when, when Nathaniel was, was telling Philip about the Messiah, that they'd found the Messiah, and Nathaniel said to him in, in John 1.46, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. So you see, Nathaniel, Nathaniel here is questioning Philip's telling him about the Messiah being from Nazareth. He, and he's, that's his mindset. That's the stigma. What good can come out of Nazareth? Now, some have concluded to be called a Nazarene, which Jesus was called Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth was an insult rather than a catchword or description. I mean, maybe that would contribute to another reason why he wasn't so quickly received by some, having been raised in Nazareth, and that, that's his town in which he come from. That was an inappropriate place for the Messiah to have been raised, for the Messiah to have come out of. Now, human wisdom would say the news of the Messiah, the Savior coming to the world, surely he would come into the world and be raised and brought out of some kind of a prominent city or town. Some place known by the people. Some place that was known for being good and holy. Why not 
Jerusalem of all places. That's where we might think he should come from. That's where they thought he maybe ought to come from. But you see, this is God's wisdom. He operates in ways that are unusual to mankind. He often does what man would least expect, which in turn, you know what that does? That even magnifies him even more. Magnifies him even greater. You look at verse 27, we continue to see this unusual nature. He sends angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Well, who is this virgin? Well, we read that her name is Mary. Mary was young. Well, how old was Mary? The Bible doesn't say specifically how old Mary was when, she was when Jesus was born, but most Christian historians speculate that she was probably around the age of 15 to 16 years old. That's not according to our culture. That was their culture, right? According to Jewish customs at that time, a young woman might become betrothed very young in their teenage years, although the consummation of that marriage and the ceremony wouldn't happen till later till they were actually married. Sometimes it took a few years for that to happen. But here's the questions. Why not come to a woman a little older and more experienced in life? Someone who, though still as a virgin, had maybe some more maturity about her. Her age is unusual. What was Mary's social status? Mary was a poor woman. She didn't have a lot of, a lot of money. She didn't have a lot of wealth. You say, well, how do you know she was poor? Well, first, because Nazareth was not a wealthy town. It was a poor town. But secondly, you can get some insight into that by the offering that she and Joseph offered when they took Jesus to the temple. They offered two turtle doves. And that was if you couldn't afford an actual animal like a goat or a sheep or an oxen. That was the, the lower end of what people could afford. And so Mary had no high social status. She did not have wealth. Why not come to someone who had more to offer Jesus? Who had maybe could raise him in a wealthy state of life. Why not come to someone who was not betrothed? Why not come to someone who was not connected to any man? Why disrupt their marital plans and send Joseph into such turmoil? Why? Why not come to someone well-known who would easily spread the news of the Messiah? Mary wasn't well-known. She wasn't connected to the high priest or any of these wealthy and significant people in Jerusalem. So many questions that we could ask according to the wisdom of man and ask, why couldn't God have done it this way, right? But the wisdom of God, you understand, it exceeds the wisdom of man in every way. Even in the unusual things. The unusual things. You see, his wisdom and knowledge, they are deeper than we can dive. They're higher than we can climb. And they are broader than we can reach. Listen to Romans eleven thirty three. I love what Paul says here. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. You know, Paul says that at the end of a, of a great discourse through the book of Romans on the gospel and God's plan regarding Christ and, and, his, and the redemption he provided and, and how he did it, how he brought it all to pass. You see, mankind likes to think that his way is the best way. 
Man's wisdom likes to challenge God's wisdom. But you understand that God's wisdom prevails every time. 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Let us look at it afresh in 1 Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29, look at what Paul says here. He says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Catch that? Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. You understand that God doesn't operate according to human standards. If He did, if He did it the way we expected Him to do it, then we might get a little glory in that, wouldn't we? He works in ways that only glorifies Himself, because He alone is worthy of glory. We're not worthy of that. He takes what it seems to be small, unknown, and insignificant, and even opposite of what we think, and all in, all in turn to accomplish His work and to bring great, great glory to Himself. The examples of the Scriptures are overflowing with that. Consider Noah. One man and family called to build an ark to save humanity from a global flood. One man. One family. Consider Gideon and his army, who God said, you've got too many for me to work with. <laughs> they had about 20,000. He narrowed it down to 300 men. 300! Smaller army to get the victory. That's unusual. Consider David, a young shepherd boy. Not a soldier, but a young shepherd boy chosen to kill a giant with just a sling and a stone. No, no sword, no AR-15, no advanced weaponry. A sling and a stone, a little rock. He takes down a giant with it. You think about Jesus in his ministry. All the many things that he did with so little. Feeding over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. You understand that little is much when God is in it. Many things we think are just right, God sometimes changes. And many things we think shouldn't be, God does. That's why God, we see, is infinite in his, in his wisdom. Because God's plans are greater than ours, God's wisdom is infinite. And so the coming of Christ teaches us that God does not operate on human wisdom, and nor should we expect Him to. But notice with me letter B. Not only does God not operate according to human wisdom, He also doesn't operate according to human expectations. Now these are kind of intertwined together, but there's a little difference I'll bring out. What was the continual expectation for the Jews throughout the Old Testament? Their expectation was the coming of the Messiah. They wanted Him to come. You think the Jews ever thought, is He ever going to get here? Now would be the perfect time for the Messiah to arrive. Why couldn't the Messiah have come in previous years or earlier to save them from their many enemies of the past and even their present. Perhaps maybe in the days of Jeremiah when Israel was so rebellious and needed correction, why couldn't the Messiah have come then and maybe he could have fixed everything? 
Perhaps when Israel was taken into captivity, surely the Messiah could have set them free and freed them from Babylon. Why not when Israel returned and was rebuilding Jerusalem? Surely they could have used the wisdom of the Messiah and and done all of the things they needed to do. But the Messiah didn't come at any of those times that we could have looked at in the history of Israel. In fact, when we get to the time of Mary here, there's been a time of silence from God for, near, for a few hundred years. From the time of the last prophet who spoke from God, Malachi, to the time when news comes to Zechariah about John the Baptist, there's been a few hundred years that have passed where God has just been silent. He's given the silent treatment to Israel for a while. And now all of a sudden we see God speak. But during all this time, could they have thought maybe God has abandoned them? Could they have wondered if the Messiah would ever really come? And then, lo and behold, the announcement finally comes to Israel. First about John the Baptist, but now to Mary, this young virgin. And in verse 26, we read that the angel Gabriel was sent from God. You know why angel Gabriel came at that time? Because that was the divine, perfect time for him to come. Because God's never wrong in his timing. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time with everything in his providence. Galatians 4, verse 4 through 5. Here's a great text to note with this. Paul the Apostle says, regarding the plan of Christ coming in redemption, he says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. I want you to note that little phrase there, three words, or four if you include the, the fullness of time. The fullness of time. What does the fullness of time mean? What does that refer to? You know what it means? It means just the right time. That's the simple version. It means the exact right time, the perfect time, the ordained time, the decreed time by God. You understand that God alone, He is the sovereign over all of history. Not just bits and pieces here and there. He governs it from beginning to end. It's His story. It's His narrative. And so what you find with this is that for Messiah to come and fulfill all that was foretold about him in the Old Testament, the state of Israel and the state of the world had to be prepared and in a specific way for all of that to come to pass exactly as God described it. Every little bit to piece of it. And when Mary gets this announcement, you understand that the timing is absolutely perfect. It couldn't have been better. Now, perhaps it wasn't the best timing according to man's expectations, but it was to God, wasn't it? Now, we have to remember this for our own life about the mind of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, listen to what God says. This is, this is, this is one of them passages that makes, reminds me of how small I really am. <laughs> and we need to be reminded of that, don't we? God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And watch this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How many of us can measure the distance between the heavens and the earth? It's immeasurable. You can't put a measurement to it. And God says, my way is that much higher and better than your way. Have we ever questioned the timing of God and wondered why he was waiting or refraining to making clear his plans? Why did God allow this at this time? Why couldn't God have done things this way instead in our life, we may think? We've all been there, haven't we? Most of the time, we don't completely understand why our expectations aren't the way God works. But we must recognize that you, you will save yourself a lot of turmoil and give yourself a lot of peace if you just recognize this, this truth. That we're not meant to understand all of God's ways. Why he does what he does and why he allows what he allows and when he does what he does. We're not meant to understand those things. We're called to believe and trust him with those things. I love this passage that Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You know what that shows us right there? There are secret things that are not that are not that we're not privy to regarding God in his ways. There is a secret will of God and a revealed will of God. Can you guess what the revealed will of God might be? You're holding it in your hand. It's the word of God. The secret will of God refers to that which is not known to us. How God works and what he's doing. Why is he going to allow me to do this on that day? Or you, this happened to me at this point in my life. Why does all that happen? I don't know. Nor do you. Now sometimes in hindsight we might get a little glimpse and be, God allows us to see how and why he did what he did when he did. Sometimes we may not get a little glimpse and that's okay too. See, that which is of his own decree and how he works and when he works must be left in the hands of the infinitely wise sovereign who loves us beyond measure. Samuel Rutherford, I love this quote by him. He says, Providence has a thousand keys to deliver his own, even when all hope is gone. Let us be faithful and care for our own part, which is to do and suffer for him, and lay Christ's part on himself and leave it there. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. So you and I, Christian, we're called to be faithful in what we already know from his word and leave the plans of God to him. You see, Mary didn't fully comprehend all the intricate details of God's eternal plan, but here she's learning just little by little. Oh, he's going to make me part of that. Little by little, she's learning, and we need to learn this lesson too. Number two, I took a while on that one. I'll try to go quick through these, but not too quick. I want you to get it. We see that God's, the first lesson we learn is that, that God's plans are unusual. But the second thing we learn is that God's promises are unfailing. God's promises are unfailing. You understand that the whole event of Advent, the coming of Christ to the world, is a fulfillment of God honoring his word. He promised this to happen, therefore he fulfills this to happen. What did God promise? Well, the first thing he promised, I'll break this down into two things that we see in our text. God promised to send a Savior. Not just any Savior, the Savior, the only Savior. 
Christ Jesus the Lord. What does Gabriel tell her in verse 31? He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name what? Jesus. Oh, how sweet the name of Jesus is. Greatest name in this world. Why is this news so significant? Because of the name her child will be given. What is so significant about the name of Jesus? Because of what it means. You see, names and their meaning were very important to the Jews and their culture. Often, you'll read through your Bible and you're going to say, so-and-so was named this because of this. Names were often identifiers with people in the Bible times. The name Jesus is the Greek equivalent to Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. He is salvation. Now, the name Jesus was given to sons as a symbolic hope of the Lord's anticipated sending of salvation through a Messiah who would purify His people and save them from oppression. There were other Jews who had the name Jesus. But only one person would ever carry that name and actually fulfill what it means. And that is Jesus Christ, the one who's raised in Nazareth. You see, the person here is Jesus. Now, do you think Mary knew what the name Jesus meant? Of course she did. She's well-versed in this. In case it wasn't clear enough already, Gabriel makes sure that Joseph knows too. His name is going to be Jesus. Y'all ain't going to fight over names. You're not going to discuss names. You know, Bethany and I were expecting our fourth, and that's one of the discussions, right? Names. Guess what, church? Tomorrow we'll be able to narrow it down a little bit. We should find out the gender tomorrow. So that will eliminate either boy or girl names, right? But even then, we're still going to be batting names back and forth. Which one do we like best? But there's no discussion about the name of Jesus. There's no debate. Gabriel tells Joseph in Matthew 121. I love this. This describes what he's going to do. She will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. Here's why. Here's why. For he will save his people from their sins. Why call him Jesus? Because he's going to save his people. He's not going to try to save his people. He's not going to come to the world as a potential savior. He's going to come into the world and he's going to actually save his people from their sins. I'm so thankful that salvation is guaranteed. That it's not left up to chance or possibility or even my own human will. It is according to God's sovereign grace. He's not an ordinary child. He is the Savior. There's no possibility, there's no outcome here where he does not save his people from their sins. You see, there's a great number of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah in which they were to look to. The first one we ever read of is all the way back in Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15. You remember what that prophecy is it's a little obscure at first but you look at it there is a promise that a deliverer would come through the seed of a woman to crush the serpent bring deliverance crush his head though his heel would be bruised this seed his head satan's head would be crushed 
Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is the promise that a virgin would be the one to conceive and bear Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does God, what does Gabriel say of this Jesus who will be born to Mary in verse 32? He says, he will be great and shall be called the son of the highest. Son of the highest is a divine title indicating that her son would be the son of God, God himself. She's experiencing the fulfillment of this great prophecy. Thirdly, we find the promise that the Messiah would come through the line of David. Jeremiah 23, which we'll read in a moment. Just as we see in verse 27, that Joseph was of the house of David. So also was Mary, according to Luke 3, in her lineage. Time would fail us to present all the promises of Messiah fulfilled in Christ, for there are hundreds of them in the Old Testament. Now perhaps some Jews thought God's promises of the Savior would never come to pass. It's been so long since the prophecies were written and they lived in a time when all seemed hopeless with Rome ruling over them with an iron, iron fist. But then came Gabriel announcing the Messiah's arrival. What does this name teach Mary about God? It teaches her that God keeps his promises. That he is unfailing in his word. God promised to send a Savior and he has done so. And Christian, this principle applies to each and every one of us. You understand that the Word of God is filled with promises that apply directly to the Christian. In the right context, I would note, you can take the promises to the eternal bank. God never fails them. God never fails them. Cling to them. Letter B, God promised also to send a king, a savior, and a king. You see, God's promise of the Messiah would not only include salvation, but also a kingdom. This Messiah would be the king from David's line, and his kingdom would exceed all other kingdoms. What's Gabriel tell Mary here of this promise? In verse 32 and verse 33, he says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Would these words have been recognizable to Mary? Absolutely, because all of the Jews were looking for this truth to happen. Mary had no doubt about the kingdom prophecies and the coming ruler over Israel. The Old Testament emphasizes it over and over. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, just one example here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The promise of the king to come through the line of David. Would this promise ever come to pass? Would the kingdom ever be established? Not only did Gabriel announce this truth about Jesus... But guess what Jesus begins preaching when he starts his message? What's the message he's preaching? He preaches in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. There's the time again. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Why does Jesus say that? Because to enter into the Messiah's kingdom takes a spiritual rebirth. You understand that? The Bible tells us that once we've been born again, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. There's a present and future aspect to the kingdom of God. It is now and ongoing and will be consummated at the end. Perfected. Would the king ever reign from David's throne? He most certainly would. Acts 2. Go read Acts 2, 29-36, where Peter ties this together regarding David's throne. That Christ, by his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God, he has assumed David's throne. You say, wait a minute. He's not in Jerusalem right now. You understand David's throne is a position, not a location. Not a place. Christ occupies the position of king. King over his true Israel, over all those who are circumcised in heart by faith in him. He reigns over his people. He reigns over creation. He reigns over history. In fact, the song we sung this morning communicates this very truth. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Many try to tie that and say, oh, that's about the second coming. No, that's about the first coming. That song's about the first coming. Scripture teaches this. And so since Christ's ascension to his throne, Paul writes this in the present tense of right now, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. He does not say that he'll reign at some point, but he says he reigns now. Why does he reign now? How does he reign now? Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. With that truth, you understand he reigns now and he has the right to save his enemies or destroy them. And it's going to be one or the other. All of this points us to the truth of God fulfilling his promises. This is the glorious truth of Christmas. Another reference you'll go read is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I won't for time's sake. But this is the glorious truth of Christmas. That a Savior and King promised long ago has come into the world and fulfilled the very word of God. He fulfilled it. This is the great lesson Mary learned, that we learned. God's promises are unfailing. God never says that he will do something and then he doesn't do it or he fails to do it. He does not promise something and then does not give it. Now, we may do that. We are frail, sinful creatures. We are not perfect. We fail sometimes. But God doesn't. He never allows his word to fail. And how wonderful that is for us today. The third lesson I want to point you to in this text and what we learn from Christmas with Christ's advent. We learn thirdly that God's power is unlimited. God's power is unlimited. We see his promises are unfailing. We see his plans are unusual. But his power is also unlimited. And we see this in the miraculous conception that was determined. Miraculous conception was determined. Now, Mary naturally has the question of how this could even be possible for her to conceive a child in her womb when she's never been with a man sexually, the way in which women get pregnant. Verse 34, she asks, How will this be 
since I am a virgin? We all would have had that same question. It's impossible for a virgin to conceive a child. Outside of modern technology that might be able to do that with implanting different things. I'm not going to get into all the science between that. But back in this day, understand that it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. The natural order. This goes against the natural order. And what an amazing answer received here in verse 35. Look at this. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Look at this. This describes the glorious third person of the triune God, God the Holy Spirit. But overshadow Mary. It is a picture of divine presence and would implant in Mary's womb the seed known as God the Son. You say, well, how does that work? I don't understand that. Welcome to the club. That's the whole point of this. God does what's impossible to our human mind can conceive. How mysterious it is. How marvelous it is. How miraculous this is. The angel again tells her, Therefore the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. You understand that this is a miracle of miracles. That the eternal God would become a mortal man. Take on human flesh. Oh, how John displays this beautifully. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh, it dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is that Word? It's the same Word that you read in John 1 at the beginning who created everything. Him. This Word. God the Son. Entered into the womb of Mary so that he could naturally take on the development of a real human body. Some of you might have seen this on Facebook I put on there a couple days ago, but Friday after we had done our family worship time, Jubilee had asked a question that kind of took me by surprise a little bit. She said, how can Jesus be God if he was in Mary's belly to become a man? How's that work? I didn't want to say, well, I don't know, because that's the truth. I don't know the intricacies of how that worked, but what we do know, God is triune in nature. And Jesus is also God, and he took on flesh so that he could actually die for our sins. He had to do that. You see, he did not have his beginning in the womb of Mary, but only came into the world through the womb of Mary to take on a human body, to live the sinless life that I could never live, to pay the penalty for sin that I could never pay, and to conquer the, the, the enemy that I could never conquer, which is death. Christ did all of that. Impossible. It's an impossibility in our mind. Only he could have done that. You see, Jesus most certainly is the eternal God who became a man. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon regarding his nature. He says of Christ, He who never began to be but eternally existed began to be what he eternally was not and continued to be what he eternally was. You might have to read that three or four times to get a hold of it. He had a way with words. But wow, amazing. Something impossible in the eyes of men. 
That's why Mary asks the question, but the angel continues in verse 36, telling her about another miracle that took place with her, her elderly relative, who's beyond childbearing years, getting pregnant with John the Baptist. Not a virgin conception, but just a natural conception, still a miracle, because they're beyond childbearing age. And with this, Gabriel revealed in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. What's nothing mean? The Greek word for it means nothing. Ponder it. Nothing is impossible with God. What's Mary learning here? She's learning that God's power is unlimited. That he really is the Almighty. We have to remember that too as Christians. That God's power is unlimited. He can do whatever he desires and wills to do according to his purposes. Now, just because his power is unlimited doesn't mean that we can just declare him do whatever we want. I've been reading through Mark, and I find it, I've always find this passage humorous. When, when, when James and John ask Jesus, they come to him and say, Master, we would like for you to do whatever we want you to do. I just wonder, did Jesus get a tickle out of that? And, and, and they ask, we want us, each of us want to sit on your right, on, on, on your hand, right and left. I just find that passage so humorous. Like, who are they to think Jesus is some genie in a bottle just to do whatever they want him to do? And then the other disciples, they got pretty mad at them. Like, who do you think you are asking him that? What about us, right? God can do whatever he wants to do according to his will. Not according to ours. Remember, his ways are unusual. Keep that in mind. But such, such a truth drives home to Mary and to us of God, his power being limitless. But notice letter B, and this is just by way of application that we glean from Mary, is that we see a meaningful conviction was displayed in Mary. A meaningful conviction was displayed. After all this is revealed about the Messiah coming and how he would come, in verse 38, Mary gives her response saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according, let it be to me according to your word. You notice that she doesn't say, I don't know about all this. Are you sure you got the right person? Maybe I ought to try so-and-so down the road. No, she recognizes this is God's plan for her. And this is her heart of faith and submission to the will of God. She says, Let it be to me according to your word. You understand that we as Christians have to have the same kind of heart and attitude. She's trusting God with something beyond her, something bigger, something she don't even understand. And she is submitting to that. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with half your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Any of y'all catch that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. I know you're getting hungry. I'm just making sure you're still here. This truly is the only way any of us will ever surrender to the will of God. Even when we don't comprehend the will of God. Is to trust him and not lean on our own understanding. What does Mary learn from Christmas? She learns that God's plans are unusual. God doesn't operate like man. She learned that God's promises are unfailing. That none of those promises ever fall short. She learned that God's power is unlimited, that nothing is impossible with God. Do you see and learn those same truths from Christmas? I pray that today you see those truths from the word of God.